Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Andreas Lopakis, the uh, editor-in-chief of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And in the podcast you're about to hear, I talk with uh, Rachel Cooper, who's a young woman whose mother had severe chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and decided that she wanted to have medical assistance in death. Rachel shares very movingly her experience as the daughter of someone who dies with medical assistance in death. Uh, about what that experience was like for her. And as a physician and as a son, I found it a very educational and moving interview. So Rachel, thanks very much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me and inviting me. Tell me a bit about your mom. So my mom's name was Ethel Sum Cooper. She was very outgoing. She was very gregarious. She loved to laugh. She had a wonderful sense of humor, and she was not afraid to employ it. Uh, She was the child of Holocaust survivors that their family came to Toronto in the 1950s. Um, My mom, by profession, was a teacher, and uh, Yiddish was her mother tongue that she grew up with. And so over the course of her many years of teaching, she actually taught a generation of students the Yiddish language and about Yiddish culture. She was a very small woman in stature. She just stood five feet tall, but you wouldn't know it from her personality. Uh, one anecdote that stands out to me is when she was teaching middle school she would teach these grade eight boys that had had a growth spurt. And so they were like six feet tall. And it wasn't unheard of for my mother to stand up on a desk and look a kid in the eye to admonish them. And and that was the kind of person she was. She was full of energy and she, she loved life. In addition to her teaching, she also was a community organizer and activist. And so when she wasn't teaching and she wasn't doing her community work, she was a very loving, devoted wife and mother um, to my dad, my sister and I. Uh, And then she became a grandmother in late 2018 and uh, really, really loved her grandson, too. And your relationship with her? Yeah, I mean, I think our relationship was complicated in a lot of ways, What I can say is that my mother really instilled in me values around the importance of advocacy and social justice um, and the importance of having a life that's rooted in values and ethics. And so, you know, when I reflect on my relationship with my mother, like what I really take is the importance of acting in a way that aligns with what you believe and also having a sense of humor about yourself and about the world around you. And we're here to talk about the fact that that your mother opted to have medical assistance in death. She had chronic obstructive lung disease. Mm. Um, tell me how you first heard about or how your mom talked to you about the fact that she might want to have made. So I think a little bit of context is important here. So she, in March of 2019, had an acute exacerbation of her illness that uh, landed her in intensive care. And as a family, we made the decision to have her treated. When you said as a family, she wasn't able to make that decision That's herself correct. at that time? Yeah, yeah okay. she was not able to make the decision. And as a family, we made the decision together. Had she talked to you before about what she would want if she was in that situation? Or were you kind of trying to guess what she would have wanted? 
No, interestingly enough, they, my parents both had powers of attorney drawn up that were identical. And for other reasons, I actually had copies of the power attorney on me when she got sick. Um, but her wishes were to have no invasive measures. And with her illness and the exacerbation of her lung disease, they wanted to use non-invasive ventilation. And so there was a bit of a question. It was a bit of a, a middle ground where we weren't quite sure how to read into the wishes yeah. that she had. Okay, got it. So, so we brought her home and uh, about five or six months went by. And over the course of the summer, we could see that my mother was struggling. Um, once we brought her home, she was receiving palliative care at home to keep her comfortable. Um, and the palliative care team had been very responsive. Uh, but in at the beginning of August, uh, my sister and brother-in-law and I could tell that she really wasn't doing well. And we eventually convinced her to allow us to bring her to hospital. Uh, and as it turned out, she was again having uh, an exacerbation of her illness. Uh, and after she had been in the hospital for about maybe five or six days, I want to say, um, she began to realize that this was the end of her life in some way, um, whether it would be that she would get better, hospital would treat her, she'd get better and go home and this would happen again, or you know, the medical assistance and dying could be an option. And so um, on a Monday afternoon, my sister and dad and I received an email from a cousin who was very close to my mother. And the email basically said, I'm writing on behalf of Ethel. She has indicated to us that she would like to further explore uh, having medical assistance and dying she has discussed it with us and it, she's now asking me as the writer of this email to inform you um, and uh, with further clarification from the medical team, we will figure out what the next steps will be. Um, the, the email, uh, I think my sister, father and I all had different reactions to this email. Uh, I personally wasn't super surprised by it because it, in my opinion, aligned with what my mother believed in. And I had also wondered to myself without sharing my thoughts with my mom that she might want to think about medical assistance and dying. I think given the way we found out about her interest in MAID, um, there was then some confusion amongst family members about what do we do and what do the goals of care look like and how as a family are we involved with those um, revised goals of care. And so my sister and I reached out to her outpatient palliative physician who spoke with us at length and, and really helped us to understand what's involved uh, from a legislation side of things, but also what it looks like uh, for someone to receive medical assistance in dying. And then the physician very kindly offered to come to the hospital where my mother was at, where this physician didn't have practicing privileges, to come as a, a concerned friend of the family to speak with my mother. And this physician very graciously came after hours and spent a very long time talking to my mother, um, really just understanding where my mother was coming from and saying, you know, when the official maid team goes to assess her, my sense is that this team will find her capable, which is in fact what happened. And so that's how things initially came to be. Do you know, was your mom 
thinking about maid for a long time and had she talked to the cousin for a long time without you knowing or was it just at the time of this admission she sort of thought oh man this is now what I want to consider you know I think we found out at the end of her life that she had wished that we had not made the decision to provide her with Mm. intensive treatment after her first exacerbation in the spring Um, and so I imagine though I can't confirm that you know, some of the decision was her reflecting on having lived through that ordeal and sort of the pain and the suffering that came from coming home, but still being incredibly ill. Um, But you know what, I I wasn't privy to any conversations. So I can't really speak beyond that. And then it sounds like you got this email. Sounds like you and your dad, your sister were Maybe not super surprised, but still kind of it's it's that's probably one of the most personal mm-hmm. kind of wrenching emails one's ever going to get in one's life. Um, like, how did you talk about it and how did you eventually talk to your mom about it? So I think, you know, I definitely I understood where she was coming from there. For me, there was no kind of argument against um I, uh, from the get-go, was willing to support whatever decision she made. Um, I actually think uh, our our family are we're, we're doers, and so when stuff like this comes up, our inclination is to do. Um, and so then we started, we kind of sprung into action to think, okay, what are the things we need to do in order to make this happen? And as a family, what are the things that we want to make sure that we have the opportunity to do before my mother's death? What were some of those things? Yeah, so there was a lot of things. So so one thing, for example, was um, getting witnesses to sign the paperwork that my mother had to do in order to formally request made. My sister and I thought carefully about who the right people would be to witness this, given that it can't be, I think, uh, someone who's related. It couldn't be a, a healthcare provider. Uh, And so there was a bit of a ceremony around bringing in these two witnesses who were um, peripheral friends of the family and um, having both a solemn moment, but a bit of a lighthearted moment around that. Um, And then starting to think about what those 10 days would look like. Um, The kind of twist in the story is that um, within the legislation, there's sort of a 10-day waiting period between when you can request made and when made can be delivered. Um, but given my mother's condition, there was um, a, a very clear question about whether if they waited 10 days, she would still be competent to provide her consent for her to receive medical assistance in dying. And so three days after she signed the paperwork, um, I got a call. I had briefly left the hospital um, to, to get some air. And I was told you need to come back. We're not sure that mom will be able to make the decision to have made if we wait. Um, and given that at the time, my mother was really hoping that she would be discharged from hospital and have the opportunity to receive made at home. We then, uh, with the help of the, uh, internal medicine team and the palliative care team at the hospital needed to sit down and have a conversation with her to say, you know, you indicated to us that you have two values that you wish to be um, followed, acted upon. So one was being able to die with dignity um, at the time of your choosing. And the other thing is for you to die at home um, and receiving made 
it's looking like uh, the way things are going with your health that if we wait to get you home, that you might not be able to make that decision in the end. So what do you want to do? And after my mother thought about it and together we talked about like the pros and cons of the option, she decided, okay, I'll stay in hospital if it means that I will get the opportunity to make this choice for myself. And were there any wishes or things that your mom wanted done, people she wanted to see, you folks want to see together before she died? Yeah. So when all of this came to be that there was a bit of a a rush, so to speak, around um, getting maid set up for my mom, that happened on a Friday and it was confirmed that she would receive maid on a Tuesday. And as it so happened, it was my parents' 34th anniversary on the Saturday or Sunday. And so as a family, um, we orchestrated basically an anniversary dinner. The hospital very kindly allowed us to use a waiting room down the hall from the unit my mother was on. Um, We brought, you know, China dishes and food and uh, toasted my mother and we just spent time together. Um, My mother also, you know, had numerous friends, um, family members, nieces, nephews, cousins, Um, people from early in her life, people from, you know, a more recent time in her life, you know, she asked them to come and see her, which, you know, everyone obliged. Um, And she also spent probably a half day actually telling us her life story. So it, it came up that a bunch of us were sitting around her bed and someone asked a question about something very early in her life. And what it actually led to was an afternoon of storytelling. My mom Uh, telling her narrative. And uh, my sister very early on said, can I record this? And so I'm very grateful that she had that foresight and and we were able to to record. But the other thing that came of it was that a lot of the stories that she told became the backbones of her obituary Mm -hmm. uh, and for her eulogies that my sister and I gave. So for me personally, to make meaning of all of this and to give myself something to do, Um, I actually drafted her obituary, which she approved. Uh, She had some minor revisions and very sternly told me what they were. And uh, we were able to finalize the obituary while she was alive. And I also had drafted a considerable part of her eulogy that, you know, she she listened to and and approved of as well. And this is all happening on a busy medicine ward in a big hospital. Is that right? Yeah, so it was a large academic hospital. Um, When my mother, um, at some point in her stay, my mother had been moved, I think, to a private room. And so we were very uh, lucky to not have to share the space with another patient. And at one point, um, we got admonished because there were too many chairs in the room. Um, You know, we were breaking hospital policy. And uh, we said, we don't care. Uh, it was really important for us to be together and and to be by her, uh, to be by her side and to enjoy the time together. So tell us, um, just sort of tell us about um, the actual process I made and when your mom died. Yeah, so I remember the morning very well. Um, my father actually stayed overnight in the hospital with her. So I showed up at six o'clock in the morning with coffee and uh, walked into the room and my mother was uh in bed on her side asleep, and my father was on a stretcher on his side asleep. Uh, and it was a very, I get emotional just thinking about it yeah. now. It was a it was a very poignant moment. 
uh, we spent some time together and then. Did you wake him up or did you just wait? Oh, so yeah. So I sat there for a while and just watched. And then my dad kind of stirred and I put my finger to my lips and I was like, shh, you know, and just like lie there for a little bit. And then uh, once my mom stirred, then we, we got the day started. But, you know, in very shortly after my sister and brother-in-law and their baby showed up uh, and we sang together, we, we talked, we spent time together. And I guess, Andreas, if I can just back up a second, um, you know, on the, the sun, on the, sorry, the Monday night before my mother died on Tuesday, uh, my father had gone home late in the evening to pick up all the things he would need to stay overnight and, and to get dressed the next day. And so my sister, brother-in-law and I basically crawled into bed with her and cuddled and, uh, did what we used to do when we were kids, which was like hang out in bed and tell stories and laugh and talk. And uh, for me, that's that's what stays with me is this memory of being with my mom and uh, um, in, enjoying her company. Uh, but to just pivot back to the day of, our family members began to arrive. Was there an actual time when? Yeah, we were told about 1045, between 1030 and 11 is what we were told. That must be kind of weird. Like, I mean, no? Yes and, yes and no. I mean, for me personally, I, I had the opportunity to have a number of private conversations with my mother where we talked about and hashed out some things that were still not dealt with in our relationship and questions that I had for her. Um, my sister similarly had had a number of conversations, um, really seeking her wisdom and counsel about things and sharing memories. And so the morning of her death, like maybe about an hour, an hour and a half before I said, I need five minutes. Uh, and what that did was it actually set off a chain where everybody got five private minutes mm -hmm. with Ethel. And then once the last person had had their time, and the physician was already there and waiting for a few minutes. And we said, okay, now, now is the time. So we all went into the room and there were chairs. Someone broke out a bottle of scotch and we all toasted my mother. Um, and then the physician, uh, you know, provided medical assistance in dying. And my sister and I lay on the bed with her. Uh, my dad was in a chair holding her hand. Uh, the rest of our family was, you know, seated around her. Um, and my sister said, we should sing. Should we sing something we should sing? And so we began to sing What a Wonderful World, Louis Armstrong's song, um, which actually was the song that my sister would sing to my nephew when he went down for a nap. And it just seemed mm. like the natural thing to do. So we began to sing and we got through the song once. Uh, and then we sang a second time. And when we finished the, the second go round of the song, the physician put her hand on my shoulder, my sister's shoulder and said, she's passed. Wow. And how did your dad hold up during all this? You know, he is the most remarkable man. Um, he is a man of great courage. And I think, I don't want to speak for him, but but my observations of him was a man of um, understood the poignancy of the moment and who wanted to, um, you know, honor my mother all the way through their their 34 year marriage. And so she he sat by her and after she died, he sat by her side and read Psalms to her and just was with her. 
until it was time for us to, uh, you know, make our to make our way home and, and to start planning for the funeral. I mean, we're talking because you wrote about this mm-hmm. um, in the CMAJ. Um, mm-hmm. What is it that made you want to write that and made you willing to share this incredibly personal story with me? So after uh, after my mother died, uh, we're a Jewish family, so we did the uh, traditional seven days of sitting Shiva um, and mourning my mom. And then as a family, we took some time away. And so when we came back after being away in September, I slowly got back into life. And I went to see my therapist. And he said to me, like, what's keeping you occupied these days? And I said, well, you know, I have to write all these thank you letters for people who sent food and made donations. And I have to send notes to the healthcare team. And uh, I have to send a card to my mother's executioner. And it struck me in that moment that maybe it was a Freudian slip, maybe it wasn't. And when I went home later that evening, I was still reflecting on whether or not my comment was a Freudian slip. And I sat down with a pad of paper and began to write. And uh, when I finished writing the piece, um, I thought to myself, maybe this is something that other people should read. And I reached out to um, two academic mentors of mine from the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Um, and they both strongly encouraged me to send the piece for publication. Um, I sent it first to my dad and my sister, who both read it and um, agreed that mom would want this to be shared. Um, and the way I've conceived of the reason for sharing it, because it is, it's quite a personal piece, is that, you know, my my work in the healthcare system has always been about Um, patient engagement and breaking down stigma. And I see this piece uh, no differently than the other work that I do in that, you know, I think it's very easy to hold judgments and um, perpetuate mythology about things that we don't know much about or have no experience with and to humanize the experience of medical assistance and dying um, to paint a picture of it and to grapple uh, in a nuanced way with the complexity of emotions that I had from the experience um, allows other people uh, in the public, both physicians and people who may be considering made for themselves or their family members to understand what it's like to go through it with the aim of being able to dispel mythology and help people understand the the human experience of medical assistance in dying. Is there something that we haven't talked about that you'd like to say? I think um, I'm incredibly indebted to the physician who provided my mother with maid, who who did uh, read the story and uh, provided consent for me to have CMAJ peer review it and eventually publish it. Um, and I'm I'm just struck by the. Um, just the amount of humanity that everyone on that team had, uh, the compassion and the care that they provided to my mother, the the empathy um, and the support that they provided to us as a family, um, and also a recognition that um, you know in our in my mother's last days, 
uh, it was important for us to be together and for them to do whatever they could to facilitate us being together as a family. Um, and they were just magnificent. So I think that's important to mention. And I guess, you know, the other piece to the question about why I wrote this piece and um, why I'm very excited and proud that it's being published is that my hope is that it'll be a, a catalyst for more conversations. And, and my hope is that it will provide fodder for thought for everyone who has some uh, relationship to mate or um, who might be grappling with where they align on the subject of made. Um, but it's my hope above all that the piece uh, honors my mother's memory. Well, in this conversation, you for sure honored your mother's memory. And um, I just thank you very, very much for uh, taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much, Andreas. I greatly appreciate it. That was my conversation with Rachel Cooper. And I highly encourage you to read the Humanities Encounters article that she wrote for CMAJ. It's called Complicated Gratitude, a Letter to My Mother's Physician. And you can find it on cmaj.ca or follow the link in the podcast description. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Andreas Lapakis, Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ, and thanks for listening.